This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you enjoy this NPR podcast, please consider subscribing. Our podcasts are available on all major podcasting platforms Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as the AccessMedia.nz app. Hi, I'm Greg Watson and welcome to this week's show of Property Matters where we talk all things property or at least as much as we can squeeze into this half hour format. Lovely to have your company today. We're going to be talking about a proposed solar farm in around Palmas North, the likely shape of the urban environments in the Horizons region provided they get their way and also we're going to have a look at some landlord and tenant bad landlord, bad tenant stories a bit later on as well. So there's a scattering of articles from around the region just now. Proposed Palmist North solar farm can power 5,000 homes. And this article is by Shilpi Arua in Stuff in the Manal 2 Standard. So a new solar farm is proposed in the north of Palmist North, which would generate enough power to power 5,000 homes every year if it gets approval to be built. So Kiwi Solar Farms Limited recently unveiled plans to construct a solar farm using 45,000 solar panels on a 45-hectare site near Kairanga Bunnythorpe Road. A solar farm in Palmas North was installed in 2014 on the roof of the Civic Administration Building and Convention Centre with 400 panels generating 100 kilowatts. However, the solar farm proposed by Kiwi Solar Farms would be on a much more massive scale. 45 hectares, that's the size of 45 rugby fields. That would be an incredible sight to behold. Kiwi Solar Farms Limited founder Andrew Beckett says the solar panels could produce up to 28 megawatts of power at peak times, flowing directly into the Manawatu grid. The company is preparing to lodge a resource consent with the Palmas North City Council and is currently undergoing iwi and local neighbourhood consultation. Beckett says the days of sunshine were pretty good in the city, we're only 3% less than Auckland here, he said. The visual impact might be a concern for some, but we're working with a landscape architect to minimise the visual impact based on discussions with nearby landowners. Now, the site in question was chosen due to its proximity to a large Bunnythorpe substation and the land is flat and open, ideal for the solar farm. I can't tell you exactly where it would be from this article. But the project would allow dual land use by combining energy generation with continued farming production. Studies in Australia have shown the quality of the wool is better if sheep graze in the shade because heat stress is minimised. So you'd sort of have, I would imagine, solar panels up above the area where the sheep are. So they say they'd need to balance it, the solar farm with a productive farm, with sheep grazing underneath the solar panels, so we'll be able to have the dual use of the land making it more efficient. Sounds like a really good idea to me. Beckett said renewable energy was critical to mitigate the impact of climate change and help support the country's ambitious goals to cut down emissions. He says New Zealand needs huge investment in cleaner energy generation processes. Every unit of energy created in New Zealand roughly produces 100 grams of CO2 and that's 4,500 tonnes of CO2 that the solar farm would be abating per year. Man, that's, uh, that's great. 
Beckett said other methods of energy generation worked, but it took a long time to build. He says most of the good hydro sites are already taken and wind farms take a long time to build. However, solar takes less time to build and is easy to maintain. Now, if this gets the go-ahead, construction is likely to start late next year and completed by 2024. Another article here about the soon-to-be-created government urban development authority and how it will affect cities and towns. So this article by John Ogaluska from Stuff Environmental Section says that cities and towns to get more like pyramids and less like pancakes if a plan gets a tick. So I imagine what they'd be saying there is taller buildings in the middle going out to uh, smaller ones on the outside. Housing development in and around the Manutu will become increasingly intensified with people able to ditch the car for walking or public transport if proposed policy changes go through. Horizons Regional Council voted on Tuesday uh, to proceed with change its regional policy statement around urban development. The change involves taking the government's national policy statement on urban development and applying it to the Horizons area, Ruapehu to Horefinua, Wanganui to Tararua. So this is the the one that we've talked about on the shows before that's applying to the big cities, ones that Christchurch has uh, refused and Auckland and Wellington are taking on board. So the change involves taking the government's national policy statement on urban development and applying it to, to the area, as I mentioned. The national policy has the goal of intensifying housing instead of having cities sprawl into the country. The government wants urban areas to look less like pancakes and more like pyramids. The Horizons draft policy specifically names Fielding, Palmerston North, Wanganui and Levin as urban environments. And while the focus is mainly on Palmerston North, which is the largest city in Horizons area, all councils would have to ensure infrastructure was developed to cope with the demand for intensification. Councils would also have to consider climate change mitigation when planning developments as well as accessibility to public transport and cycling. The policy also specifically states a goal of enabling iwi and hapu to build marae and papakainga on Māori-owned land. So Horizon Senior Policy Analyst Robert Marshall said the law required other councils such as Manawatū District and Palmerston North City to follow the regional policy. We're saying that there is a requirement to intensify, so design your townships in a way that creates 10 or 15 minute communities where you can get to the places you need on foot or public transport. And this largely comes out of those national plans. Well, then be up to the councils to decide the nitty gritty, so to speak, about how the policy changed their urban areas. And that could include uh, picking strategic areas along transport routes to develop, he said. The City Council is already going through that process as it needs 5,000 new homes in a decade and 13,000 in 30 years. So Palmerston North is not a Tier 1 city like Auckland or Christchurch and those Tier 1 cities are required to rezone almost all residential areas for higher density housing. But it is required by law to enable intensified housing. City Council is consulting on on a proposal to intensify housing in the city, enabling subdivisions down to 150 square metres and housing up to three storeys. Early work by the City Council has identified parts of Awapuni, Pioneer Highway, Highbury, Milson, Hokaferu and Kelvin Grove as appropriate for intensification. Multiple Horizons councillors raise the issue of developments in rural areas onto land that was productive, which the new policy seemed to want to avoid. And this is, I guess, where it's going to be interesting to see down Christchurch Way where there's been this urban sprawl heading out and using up uh, building housing on some very fertile and productive land. Yet, 
I believe the council has recently refused the submission to intensify more in the city centre, which would help to keep that land available. Certainly very uh, relevant in this region. As Councillor Sam Ferguson during the discussions, wanted to know why Horizons could not use its urban development policy to clamp down on building on productive land. And, um, However, the Horizons Strategy Regulation Science Manager Nick Peet said the government's proposed national policy statement for highly productive land would address some of those issues. And the policy statement would introduce strong restrictions on the use of highly productive land for new rural lifestyle developments, while councils would also have the ability to rezone highly productive land for housing curtailed. Market gardeners have been saying the urban sprawl is eating up the city's most productive land. And that's where, um, again, they, they give the example of Pukakaui in this article. So interesting uh, things happening there. And it'll be interesting to see what uh, they suggest in the plan change. So submissions for Horizons plan change should be open uh, late in October and people having 20 working days um, to get their submissions in. So that's just something to keep an eye out on the horizon. If you have any thoughts about uh, the building of properties on smaller sections or properties up to three storeys high in some areas, uh, that could be your opportunity to, to do that. And what we've found from the media reports in Auckland is that people are generally in favour of housing intensification, just not right where they live. The idea of having a, a three-storied house or apartment, low-rise apartment next door, to many people, uh, sounds pretty scary. Now, talking about uh, situations where development is happening, uh, this article from Auckland uh, was really I found quite interesting, and it is something I'd give the example of as to something that can happen to people that are living in an area where there is a work requiring to be done of um, real significance and what the government can do there. But this says, uncertainty over second Auckland Harbour crossing leaves homeowners in limbo. Transport Minister Michael Wood uh, previously had announced the bridge for walkers and cyclists over the Waitemata Harbour costing $685 million and that plan was scrapped four months later. But Rod and Carol Brown says don't want to sell their harbourfront home. Even if they did, it's unlikely that they could due to the uncertainty about whether the property will be bulldozed to make way for the new Waitemata Harbour crossing. You see, residents on Prince's Street in Auckland's North Cote Point were first told the Crown needed to acquire their homes in March 2020. Two properties have since been acquired and are being rented out, while confidential agreements are in place for two more, a Waka Kotahi spokesperson confirmed. They added that another property was purchased some time ago and is being used as an office for Waka Kotahi. So negotiations for the government to acquire the remaining two properties, including the Browns' home, were, passed, were paused I should say, in October 2021 after the government scrapped plans to build a $785 million freestanding walking and cycling bridge just four months after announcing the construction would begin mid-2022. So Waka Kotahi was then charged with investigating medium-term alternate crossing options, which it provided to the Transport Minister in April, and is still waiting for a decision regarding the next step, a Waka Kotahi spokesperson said. So meanwhile, <laughs> you have these, uh, these folks, like for example Carol and Rod Brown, who have lived in their Princess, Prince's Street home since 1985. It's supposed to be their forever home, which they hope to keep in the family. The government withdrew its notice of the desire from their property title after a freestanding bridge idea tanked. But while the Browns did not want to sell the property, the option of doing so 
to put the situation behind them had been taken away. And uh, you know, effectively no one's going to buy, uh, the owner would say, if they did want to sell. Now let's, uh, so this is the sort of thing that can happen under the Public Works Act where if you own a property and let's say, for example, you're in a rural setting and the government wants to put a highway through where your house is, they can, under the Public Works Act, acquire your property. And there's a process around that. It involves valuation, well, negotiations, valuations and so forth, but you can't stop them from doing so because it's considered that that work is more important than your right to the land and that's something where these people got caught up a bit in that. And now it's more that that notice has been removed. There's still that, I guess, stigma or question marks if you wanted to sell a home in that location. A local example of this is the land being acquired between Palmas North and Bunnythorpe for the future Kiwi Rail Hub. Again, the owners don't really have a choice, but they will sell those properties for market value. But in the meantime, imagine if you'd built your dream home out there, you're living in it, and only to know that uh, that's going to be gone. And that's something that's that's pretty sad. In terms of uh, interesting properties for sale at the moment, uh, one of the Lord of the Rings filming location is for sale. So after 15 years of devoted care and hard slog, the owners of a 900-square-metre, 100-year-old mansion in Wairapa are ready to downsize to a brand-new build. And this article is on stuff.co.nz under the real estate section and written by Joanna Davis. Fernside, with its nearly five acres of exquisite gardens, complete with private lake and orchard, was a location for the filming of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The total 11.6 hectare property dates to the 1860s and also has been used as a US ambassadorial residence. As well as the eight-bedroom weatherboard and slate roof home, there is a 200-square-metre three-bedroom cottage. Gee, that, that's just about bigger than my house. Just the cottage. The property on State Highway 2, South Wairarapa, was in a neglected condition before the current owners bought it in 2007. It didn't require a full rebuild but needed a lot of work. Even the cast iron gutters were repaired piece by piece. The property was featured in NZ House and Garden magazine twice, once describing the garden restoration and another time the mansion's overhaul. It's an interesting looking property. It's worth having a look online. It's an American colonial revival style mansion. It was built of heart remu and has oak and jarrah floorboards. It has three large reception rooms and six bathrooms and the servant bells remain in place. So it's really interesting to, to see that that's for sale. I'll see if there's a bit of an indication here as to the price. I'm not sure. But over the years there, the uh, the couple that lived there opened their home for garden tours and also welcomed Flat Earth Tours Company customers inspecting the Lords of the Rings site. It'll be interesting. I just want to see if this article says what site it was in the movie. It doesn't quite. But uh, it's, it's for sale by deadline sale by November 3rd and being shown by appointments only. So that's Fernside, if you wanted to look that up. Described as an English country estate in New Zealand and one of the most significant properties in New Zealand, according to the advertising. But if you're looking for something that's a little bit different, how about this house? It's a, described as a gingerbread cottage in Freeman's Bay. So the headline by Colleen Hawkes on stuff, uh, homed sections, says Gingerbread Cottage is a real fantasy villa that's ripe for restoration. Now this is a case of location, location, location because it's got a $3.8 million rating value of a a 
Worker's Cottage. And it's a bit of a do-up. It says, once in a blue moon, a fairy tale property comes on the market that's just crying out for restoration, and this deceased estate is that property. The late 1880s Worker's Cottage in Wood Street, Freeman's Bay, Auckland, is a three-storey gem with a steep-pitched roof, gable roof, dormer and bay windows, a traditional veranda and fretwork. There's enough original decoration for listing agent Elaine Ferguson to describe it as a real fantasy gingerbread house. That's sort of how it looks, and you can find this one online too. She says it's a darling waiting for a renovation. Despite the work needed, the cottage still carries a rating value of $3.8 million. You'd have to have a look online. It's in a state of disrepair on the outside, but there are significant features to catch the eye, including several attic rooms with ceilings that follow the steep pitch of the room. And despite being a worker's cottage, it's actually 287 square metres and is clearly built for a large family, big living rooms, four large bedrooms, and, and so forth. It's real prime real estate territory, and it's within walking distance of Ponsonby in the city, and that's why the valuation's so high. However, the only sale that's noted on council records was in 2000 when the property went for $560,000. Oh my word, how prices have changed. Just going to, there was another article here um, about this is more heading down the investment side of things for landlords. A company called Resimac has just launched a new 20 year only, sorry, 20 year interest only mortgage for residential investors. So Resimac targets the residential property investors chasing buying opportunities in the current market with a 20 year interest only mortgage. And they're a non bank mortgage lender. They've launched this interest-only mortgage and it's available as long as you have for up to 50% of a property's valuation, 50% loan-to-value ratio, although in total investors can borrow up to 60% loan-to-value ratio on existing properties and 70% on new builds. So they're making the criteria slightly stricter to get it. Um, And anything above the 50% LVR uh, rating would not be interest only and would require interest and principal repayments. But still, a 20-year interest only on that part um, is, is interesting. And an interest only loan means that you're not paying the property off at all. But over 20 years, of course, as an, uh, as an investment, you gain capital gain so that when you sell it in future, you make a profit on that. Now, with regards to uh, an interest only loan, it also means that the repayments on the mortgage are significantly less because you're not paying any principal. In other words, you're not paying the house off. So interest-only loans are popular with investors and have been historically. Interesting, I've never ever seen one of this length, so it's going to be interesting if there's a market for that. People taking those would be thinking about the long-term investment, and um, but it just means that um, people might be able to borrow now. The interest rate might be slightly higher, and there is an establishment fee. And we're now going to go to our bad landlord, bad tenant section of the show. This article from goodreturns.co.nz. Drug growing operation leaves landlord with massive costs. A landlord who was alerted by police to substantial damage at their rental caused by the tenant's marijuana growing operation has been awarded a bit over $14,000 by the Tenancy Tribunal. Extensive damage was caused throughout the property by tenant Hoang Van Pham when he installed heat pumps, put plastic sheeting over the windows and cut holes into the ceilings so hot air could be transferred between rooms for his marijuana crop growing enterprise. A detailed report provided to insurer AMI by a loss adjuster showed at the time of the visit the illegal substances had been removed by the police 
but there was still a large quantity of the tenants' belongings within the house, as well as buckets and plant soil which could be used, which was being used to grow plants. AMI says it considers the damage caused by the tenant to be deliberate under the terms of its policy. So I'm just going to digress for a minute to talk about insurance. Um, it's really important, very important, to get insurance for intentional damage. So this landlord personally wouldn't be out of pocket by that $14,000 or however much it cost, they'd only be paying the excess around that. So what happened? A fixed-term, year-long tenancy began on 3rd of April last year. Two months later, the landlord, who has named suppression, was alerted about the illegal drug-growing operation and damaged the property and applied for termination of the tenancy for abandonment, rent arrears, water charges, refund of the bond, a disposal of goods order, compensation, exemplary damages and the filing fee. The tenancy was terminated in August of last year with the case part heard. The second hearing over compensation and exemplary damages was heard recently where the landlord produced documentary and photographic evidence and invoices for the repair and replacement costs of, for intentional damage of carpet, wall and ceiling damage, the removal of Van Pham of the ceiling insulation and the insulation, installation of extra electrical cabling and wiring by the tenant. Carpets throughout the house had to be replaced and the insurer's report noted mould where water was, has been spilt and allowed to soak into the carpet and the sum of 2700 was awarded by the tribunal to the landlord. There was extensive damage to the walls and ceiling throughout the house. Holes were made in the walls and ceiling for the insulation of hot lamps and the trims were also damaged where plastic sheeting was laid over the carpets. Damage was also noted by AMI to the doors and windows, a result of tenant growing drugs within the premises. And for the, for those, six thousand nine hundred was awarded by the tribunal. Van Pham also removed the ceiling insulation and damaged electrical cables and wiring when connecting additional wiring for the installation of heat lamps. A, um, a heat uh, ducting system was installed and ducting placed throughout the whole of the roof. The tribunal uh, gave another fourteen hundred dollars for that. Curtains were at the windows at, of the property's three bedrooms and living rooms. They were removed and mostly missing at the time the tenancy was terminated and for those that are were left badly damaged, the tenant was ordered a further 1200 for replacing curtains, best part of 500 for drug testing and over 300 for rubbish removal. Seeking exemplary damages... Now these are the damages getting money paid by the tenant to the landlord. The landlord claimed Van Pham had used the premises unlawfully by setting up a cannabis growing operation. Exemplary damages can be awarded up to a maximum of $1,800. And it just goes on uh, there. Now going back to what I was alluding to just before is make sure that you have insurance on your rental properties that covers these sorts of things. And this is intentional damage specifically not accidental damage. Many landlords think they have a rental policy that's going to do what they need it to do uh, if something bad happens, but often they don't have the right options in place. It's important to get really good advice around any tenant-related loss of rent and any tenant-related intentional damage. So uh, that's uh, something which you can comment on if, if you want to, if you're watching this on a blog or on our uh, website. Going to bad tenant, we can't have a bad tenant without a bad landlord. So here we go. This article from stuff.co.nz out of Auckland. Auckland landlord must pay the tenant $38,000 after renting out a cold, drafty garage. Two tenants whose names are suppressed. And the reason that these people's names are suppressed is if you win a case in court under tenancy law, your name is suppressed. 
So the two tenants whose names are suppressed responded to an advertisement for a two-bedroom self-contained flat in 2018, according to recently released Tenancy Tribunal decision. But the flat in the Auckland suburb of Narrow Neck was in fact a partly converted garage and not self-contained as it lay beneath the main part of the house occupied by the landlord and her family. The tenants said they had no access to the upstairs of the North Shore property. The tenants gave evidence the premises suffered from some major inadequacies that negatively affected their use and enjoyment of the premises. They said the metal garage door took up almost all of one living room wall. It was uninsulated and had a large gap around it of 50 millimetres. It had to be stuffed with material to limit the drafts. Isn't that incredible? The garage floor was concrete with carpet glued directly to it and the premises suffered from high humidity and dampness causing mould growth and a prevalence of slugs, they said. Tenancy Tribunal adjudicator Brian King said the drafts and lack of insulated contributed to the issues with cold and dampness experienced by the tenants. They say the landlord, Sarah Hong, also became a constant presence in the garden area immediately outside the sliding doors to their living space. They said Hong's presence was unsettling and disturbing and undermined their peace, comfort and privacy. King found the premises were not lawfully able to be occupied as a dwelling for a separate household unit and they were therefore an unlawful premises. The tribunal was provided with evidence from council files that indicated the original building consent was for a dwelling with two upstairs and one downstairs bedroom. Later, the downstairs bedroom was partitioned into two, which it seems may have not required a building permit, King said. Consent was later obtained to install a bathroom in the downstairs area. However, there was no suggestion consent had ever been obtained for the premises to be used as a place of residence for a separate household unit, unconnected to occupation of the upstairs part of the property, King said. So here's the, the crunch. Hong was ordered to pay $38,780 in total for various breaches, including renting an unlawful premises, breaching a, quiet, a right to quiet enjoyment and not providing a form of heating. It's just incredible what uh, some landlords try to, try to get away with and um, just whether they just simply don't know the law or are oblivious to it or don't care but uh, if it's unlawful premises, and quite a substantial amount of that 38000 in my opinion, would be a full refund of any rent paid for the time that tenants live there. So if you've got property and you're not sure if you should be renting it out, you really need to get some good advice on that, as you can end up um, really having to uh, pay that back to the tenant. The other thing that you need to be careful of, and in, in, in this case was an example, is that if you do live in close proximity to the tenants, that you are allowing them... Uh, quiet enjoyment and peace and privacy and that's really important and there's exemplary damages can be and and were in that case awarded as well. Um, So if you're a landlord you're best to keep a low profile and that would include even being friends with people. I've seen situations where things turn bad later and the fact that you went there often becomes a major negative for a landlord. So we'll stop on that note. It's been lovely having your company here. You've been listening to Property Matters on MPR, Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo Irirangi on Tangata on Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson. You can find Property Matters also where all good podcasts are found. Just search Property, Manager, uh, Property Matters, Greg Watson. And otherwise, we'll catch up with you in a week's time here on mpr.nz. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this podcast in Manawatu, you could make your very own, just like this one. NPR exists to help people like you tell your story or share your passion on air and online. 
Check out npr.nz for more information. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.npr.nz forward slash donate.